Thank you for downloading this special audio version of The Light magazine. This magazine is published by the Ahmadiyya Anjuman Ishaq Islam, the only Islamic organization upholding the absolute finality of prophethood. We broadcast our Friday prayers live every week on our website, virtualmosque.co.uk. And further information on our movement can be found at aaiil.org. This is the May 2018 edition of our publication. This audio version contains the following articles. The Call of the Messiah by Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Mehmood. Fasting in Summer and Winter by Raza Ghafoor Khan. The Holy Prophet Muhammad Grants Human Rights by Mr. Salman Tafel and The Claim of Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Mehmood by Mr. Ibrahim Muhammad. The Call of the Messiah by Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Mehmood, The Promised Messiah and Mehdi. Editor's Note Any quotations from the Quran are translated from the author's explanations and are not literal translations of the verse quoted. This extract is from the English translation of a lecture he delivered in the city of Salkot, in Pakistan, taken from the Lahore Ahmadiyya publication, Essence of Islam. Arya Samaj's view of salvation analyzed. We will next take the Arya Samaj and consider the means which it proposes for release from the bondage of sin. Here again, as in the case of Christianity, we meet with a plain denial of divine revelation and heavenly signs, a denial based on the authority of Hindu sacred books, the Vedas. It is vain, therefore, to look in this direction for the complete satisfaction which the heart of man finds in the sweet words of God. The acceptance of his prayers and the manifestation of heavenly signs which reveal to him the face of the living God. But if all these sources of certainty cannot be accessed, then a man shall have to depend upon reason only, according to the Vedic doctrine. But reason, as shown above, is not a source of perfect certainty. It cannot make a man attain the perfect divine knowledge which is equivalent to seeing God. This is the knowledge which, by generating true love and fear of God, burns the chaff of sin, mortifies the sensual passions, and working a holy transformation in the life of man, cures all defects and washes away all the impurities of sin. But as most men do not care for the perfect purity of life, which frees a man from every stain of sin, so they do not even aspire after a holy life. Their hearts are so dead to it that they do not ever feel its need. On the other hand, they are ready to fight when the truth is told because of their excessive bias towards a particular set of dogmas. The position of the Arya Samaj is extremely deplorable. It denies revelation, heavenly signs and acceptance of prayers. The only means to a perfect knowledge of God and bases the whole superstructure of its beliefs on the slender basis of reason. But its principles do not even hold when judged from the standpoint of reason. For as shown above, the only argument for the existence of God that can be derived from the source of reason is that this universe could not have come into existence of itself and that it must be a creator. But the Arya Samaj teaches the doctrine that matter and soul are self-existent and eternal and that God has created nothing. Hence the only argument that reason could give for the existence of God fails given the principles inculcated by the Arya Samaj. This vital objection against the teachings of the Samajists is sometimes sought to remove 
by the assertion that though matter and soul are self-existent, the combination of the particles of matter and the soul could not be affected without the power of God. But the absurdity of this idea is clear on the face of it. For when it assumed that the particles of matter and the soul have in them the inherent quality which has made them self-existing and self-supporting from eternity, it is nothing but total mistake to assert that some external power is needed for their union and combination. To assert, first, that every particle of matter existing in the universe is, with all its qualities, a self-existing thing, and that similarly, every soul with all its attributes and power is self-existent, and to deny then that the power of combination in the particles of matter and the power of the union in matter and soul belongs to them is contradictory. No sensible person can hold this position for a single minute. The holder of such a belief is easy prey for atheism, and it needs very little effort on the part of an atheist to win over an Arya Samajist to his side. It grieves me much to see that Arya Samaj has, in formulating its doctrines, committed serious errors in both branches of law. About God, the Arias hold the belief that he is not the author of the universe and the source from which all blessings flow, but that matter and soul, with all their properties and attributes, are self-existent and not in any way under obligation of God. If this is true, it is meaningless to acknowledge the existence of God, and even if his existence is assumed, it does not appear why he deserves to be worshipped, on the grounds that he is to be taken as the all-powerful being, and how and by what methods he is to be recognised. Can anyone answer those questions? If only there were a heart capable of receiving this message of sympathy. If only someone sat in the corner of solitude and pondered over these words. Almighty God, have mercy on these people who are our neighbours of old. Turn the hearts of most of them to the truth so that they should know it and accept it. For to you belongs all power. Amen. Fasting in Summer and Winter, A Spiritual Approach by Reza Ghafoor Khan The month of Ramadan is approaching, and especially in areas with very early sunrise and late sunset, the fasting hours may be very long. Hence, some Muslims will be unwilling or physically unable to fast such long hours. In this note, we will try to express an alternative view on fasting in summer, which may enable these brothers and sisters to fast in Ramadan as well. First, we would like to quote a part of Molana Muhammad Ali's comment on verse 2187 of the Quran. An important question arises here regarding countries in which the days are sometimes very long, where it would be beyond the power of ordinary men to abstain from food from the breaking of dawn to sunset. There is a report according to which the companions of the Prophet are related to have asked him about their prayers in a day which extended to a year or a month, and the Prophet related to have answered that they should measure according to the measure of their days. From this it would follow that in countries where the days are too long, the time of fasting may be measured in accordance with the length of an ordinary day, or where practical, postpone the fasts to shorter days of about normal length. Based on this view of the Molana, we would like to provide the reader with some more arguments to fast shorter hours in the case of very long days. The first point is the spiritual meaning behind the rituals we perform. Quran 2.183 tells us that fasting should lead us to greater taqwa, to guard ourselves against evil. The goal of prayer as well is to strengthen our taqwa. Quran 29.45 states, Prayer keeps one away from indecency and evil. Also, in the case of sacrifice, as 22.37 states, it is not the flesh or blood, the physical part, that is most important. 
but observance of duty and several hadith traditions from the Prophet Muhammad on fasting show us that our fast is not complete if we find ourselves in false talk and illicit conduct during fasting. So it is not the outer acts of fasting that are important, but the inner parts. The second point is that fasting and prayer keep us away from indecency and evil. Indecency and evil to whom? Most likely not ourselves, but to others. Therefore, we should desist from doing evil to others. Our fasting should cover at least that period in which we are in contact with other people. There is a hadith which tells us that the Prophet disliked having conversations after Isha prayer, late night prayer. This is probably because the Prophet wanted Isha to be the last action of the day. The advice to his followers is not to have conversations after Isha to avoid the risk of getting involved in unnecessary talk. Isha enables us to make up for the mistakes of the day just before going to sleep. So it is our last action after having social contact with others and Fajr is our first action before our social interacting. Between Fajr and Isha are our social activities with emphasis on the time just after Fajr and just before Maghrib at normal sunrise and sunset times, i.e. the working hours. Thus, if fasting should keep us away from committing evil against others, then there will be no need to start fasting at 3am, for example, as we will have little or no social contacts until a few hours later. In winter, the situation can be reversed. Some are not willing to fast the long hours of summer, but take the opportunity to fast the very short hours in winter. We are of the opinion that in winter the fast should also cover at least the period in which we are involved in social activities, which is most likely between 6am and 7pm at least. For example, in December in Holland one would fast less than 10 hours if calculated from dawn till sunset, and iftar, breaking of the fast, would be around 4.30pm, while the time for social activities will not yet have passed. In Europe, social activities, even work, go on till 6pm in many cases. Therefore, in this case, fasting should be extended till at least after 6pm. We should also note that Islam is not a religion of either extreme, but of remaining moderate and in the middle. In high latitude countries, higher than 50 degrees, fasts in the summer are at one extreme, where they become difficult for many to undertake, and fasts in the winter are at the other extreme, where a fast does not feel like a fast. In the UK, in the summer, the fast can be as long as 19 hours, and in the winter, as short as 9 hours. It is a basic teaching of Islam to avoid going to opposite extremes in religious observance and other matters. See Quran 2081, amongst others. Furthermore, 2187 of the Quran gives permission to enter one's wife in the nights of Ramadan. This permission will not be valid if we keep fast in the mid of summer between dawn and sunset. Allah desires ease and not hardship for us. If we take fasting between dusk and dawn literally in summer, we put hardship on ourselves against Allah's will. Quran 2.185 For Salah times as well, it would be an option to fix these around the period in which we are involved in social activities in a case of non-standard times of sunrise and sunset. There is, for example, no need to perform Fajr at 3am and go to sleep again. Even if sunrise is at 3am, people may consider performing Fajr between 5 and 6 just before starting their social activities. The same goes for Isha. It can be performed before going to bed, even if the sky is not yet dark. For example, in June, sunset will be after 10pm in Holland and the end of twilight will be after midnight. According to Hadith, the Prophet dislikes sleeping before Isha. In our opinion, there is no point in staying awake till after midnight to perform Isha and then get up only four hours later for Fajr. Furthermore, this short period of time does not leave much space for those who would like to perform the voluntary night of prayers. The Hajjad Salat, in particular these people might not find spiritual fulfillment 
in the short summer nights when seeking for the Laylatul Qadr, the blessed night in which the revelation of the Quran started. In fact, going to sleep after Maghrib and getting up for Isha after midnight will give the Isha Salat the characteristics of Tahajjud prayer. Remember that the main goal of praying is not to keep certain hours but to stay away from indecency and evil. Quran 29.45 These are our opinions. In case of non-standard times of sunrise and sunset, to keep fast at least during the period covering our social activities with a maximum of 15 hours and a minimum of 13 hours approximately. 15 hours is about the longest fasting time in Makkah. And to keep the prayer times around these times as well. Of course, this is only our opinion, based on Quran and Hadith. And if one chooses to match his or her fasting or prayer times according to sunrise and sunset, one may do so according to the literal interpretation of the verses. This note is meant for those in the first place who planned not to fast due to the long hours in summer, to get them an opportunity to fulfill their duties in an easier way. The Holy Prophet's Dialogue with the Christian Delegation from Najran The first Muslim state granted religious freedom and basic human rights to non-Muslims. It was in 1983 that I first heard about the Christian delegation from Najran having a dialogue with the Holy Prophet Muhammad in Medina when he was virtually head of the Arabian Peninsula. In the closing speech of the Ninth Convention of the Lahore Ahmadiyya Anjuman Trinidad by the late Maulana Sheikh Muhammad Tufel. This speech marked the end of a convention that will always be remembered for the bombing and attempted murder of all the participants who were there on the opening day of 12th August 1983. The events of 12th August 1983 can be viewed as a precursor of what was to come. If the ideology at the heart of the attack was not rebutted, but, as can be seen, this ideology has taken hold of extremist elements among the Muslims. And the brutal attacks in Europe and other parts of the Muslim world are a testament to this. Moreover, the false narrative about Islam is not only being disseminated by extremists, but also by politicians who have used it to further their political agenda and views. The results of this have led to 57.5% of all voters in Switzerland, according to 2010 poll, supporting a constitutional amendment banning the construction of any new minarets or mosques. And the anti-Islamic Freedom Party of MP Geet Wilders has publicly demanded that the Quran be outlawed and that Muslim women who wear headscarves are taxed. The passionate speech of Maulana Tufel was important for many reasons. Firstly, unknown to all of us, it was the last speech he made. And it was fitting, as it was in his much-loved Caribbean island of Trinidad. Secondly, what he was indicating and pleading for Muslims to do was to reject the extremist views of the radical Muslims. It mattered not that he was speaking at an Ahmadiyya convention, since his message was for all to push back against the corrupt Islam being propagated. And it was significant that he mentioned the meeting of the Holy Prophet with the Christian delegation from Najran as an example of the true nature of Islam and the true message of Islam totally discrediting the extremist concepts and views. Though the contents of the speech are very important to me, personally, the mention of the Christian delegation from Najran is particularly important, especially in this age when persons of different faiths are being killed in the name of Islam. The encounter of the Holy Prophet with the Christian delegation from Najran totally dispels any doubts that Muslims who believe it is acceptable 
to kill people of other faiths because their beliefs are different to Islam are absolutely wrong. The Holy Prophet Muhammad said that differences of opinion are a blessing for society. The Christian delegation from Najran in 631 AD. The territory of Najran was located south of Bani Khatam near Yemen about 450 miles south of Medina. In this area of the Arabian Peninsula, numerous Christian tribes lived and it appears that the Yemeni Christians followed the Melchite Orthodox Rite, Byzantine Rite, whose centre was Constantinople. Najran Christians had a highly organised religious system and it is not unsurprising that initially few Christians embraced Islam. In reaction to this failed attempt at conversion, Prophet Muhammad sent another representative to Najran, Mughira ibn Shubah, who was meant to elaborate on this new religion called Islam. Intrigued by ibn Shubah's message, the Najran Christians sent a delegation of 60 people to visit the Holy Prophet in Medina. The delegation consisted of about 45 scholars and 15 assistants. Significance of the Dialogue The date of the visit of the Christian delegation from Najran to the city of Medina is not precisely known, but it is thought that it was 631 AD. And some sources, such as Ibn Hisham, the earliest historian, seems to think it was before the Battle of Badr. But the exact date matters little as what is important is the message that emanated from this encounter. The meeting with the Najran Christians is perhaps the most important interfaith meeting between Christians and the Holy Prophet Muhammad. The religious leaders from Najran, Yemen, arrived in Medina to question the Holy Prophet about the new religion of Islam and about the status of Jesus. During the dialogue with the delegation from Najran, the Holy Prophet answered their questions and indicated that Islam was a continuation of the prophetic message of Jesus, but rejected the doctrine of Trinity and invited them to worship one God and accept Islam in the name of God, the gracious, the merciful. The Quran mentions the similarities and the differences of the religions and at the beginning of the third surah, Ali Imran, the family of Imran. I, Allah, am the best knower. Allah, there is no God but He, the ever-living, the self-subsisting, by whom all subsist. He has revealed to you the book with truth, verifying that which is before it, and He revealed the Torah and the Gospel aforetime as guidance for mankind and he sent the discrimination within brackets the Quran chapter 3 verses 1 to 4 this revelation confirms that the books did indeed come down to mankind through both Moses and Jesus and importantly that it is in the same monotheistic tradition as the Quran further on there are details of the terms of the invitation made to the Christian. Say, O people of the book, come to equitable word between us and you, that we shall serve none but Allah, that we shall not associate with him aught with him, and that some of us shall not take others for lords besides Allah. But if they turn away, then say, Bear witness, we are Muslims. Chapter 3, verse 64. The above affirms God's oneness but rejects Trinity and rejects the status of priests in Christianity. However, to me, the most important aspect of this meeting at which the Muslims and Christians debated with each other is that the Christians refused to accept the message of Islam and there was no repercussion and the Christians were free to leave without suffering any harm there is no hint of any forced conversion or threat. 
The Holy Prophet's example was that Islam demands that Muslims should learn to listen, respect and tolerate other persons' views. It is however argued by scholars that the word tolerance is inadequate to describe the relationship that the Holy Prophet's action represented. And the real message is that of an egalitarian relationship of mutual respect. Moreover, the Holy Prophet realizing that they, the Christians, did not have a place to worship, allowed them to pray in the mosque itself. There are some commentators who are of the view that some people were even given refuge in the same mosque. Religious Pluralism in Islam Some scholars describe this historical event as a classic example of religious pluralism in Islam. They suggest that religious pluralism embodies, number one, energetic engagement with diversity. Number two, understanding across religious traditions. Number three, encounter of commitments. Number four, interfaith dialogue. Each characteristic was on display during the meeting between the Christian delegation from Najran and the Prophet of Islam. The Holy Prophet engaged with those Christians in a theological conversation about the status of Jesus in the light of the teachings of Islam. Both groups sought to understand the perspectives and narratives of the other side. The Holy Prophet Muhammad opened the doors of his mosque to give Christians a safe space to pray, an unprecedented example of engagement with religious diversity. And when they left Medina, they left in peace. The meeting was a perfect example of the Quranic command, there is no compulsion in religion, Quran chapter 2 verse 256. The Quran further says, you will find the nearest in friendship to believers to be those who say, we are Christians, that is because there are priests and monks among them and because they are not proud. Chapter 5 verse 82 What is happening in Yemen, Syria, Libya and Iraq is clearly anti-Islamic and against the teachings of the Quran and the Holy Prophet. The West also carries immense responsibility in causing this disaster with, with their intervention in Iraq, Libya and Syria and has, in my view, given the extremists the oxygen and space to carry out these most heinous acts. Religious freedom is a well-known Islamic principle, so it is clear that each person should be allowed to find his own path in life. People of other religions are free to practice their own faith as Islam does not force anyone to embrace it. Our Islamic heritage advanced the concept of religious freedom over 1,000 years before America was founded and the famous political writings of the early American scholars John Locke and Jean-Jacques Rousseau strongly resonate with this concept of freedom of worship. Not only does Islam demand freedom to practice religion but also to be treated justly and kindly as any other fellow human being. Quran Chapter 60, verse 8. Here is what the Quran says in this regard. Allah does not forbid about those who do not fight you for religion, nor drive you forth from your homes, that you show them kindness and deal with them justly. Surely Allah loves the doers of justice. Regarding the protection of churches, Allah says, And if Allah did not repel some people by others, surely cloisters and churches and synagogues and mosques in which Allah's name is much remembered would have been pulled down, and surely Allah will help him who helps him. Chapter 22 verse 40 Text of the Covenants made to the Christian delegation from Najran In the name of Allah the Most Gracious and Most Merciful this is a security document from Allah and His Messenger. It is written to those who have been given the book from among the Christians, those who follow the creed of Najran and whoever follows the beliefs of Christianity 
authenticated by Muhammad son of Abdullah, the messenger of Allah to all people, a covenant to them from Allah and his messenger. It is a covenant which is entrusted to the Muslims after him, after the Prophet's demise, and which they must comprehend, recognize and safeguard for them. Neither a ruler nor any man who is strengthened by the authority of a ruler has the right to revoke it, nor to replace it with something else, nor to overburden the believers with anything other than the terms stated in this document. Anyone who safeguards it, observes it, and fulfills its contents is surely on the straightforward covenant and is loyal to his commitment to the Messenger of Allah. And anyone who reneg renegates it, or changes it, or something else, or substituted with something else, shall bear the burden of his sin. And he is one who betrays the trust of Allah, who renegates on his pledge, who disobeys him and disobeys his messenger, and Allah counts him among the liars. First, that I protect the Christians and defend them, their churches, places of worship, places of their prayer, places of their monks, the sacred areas which they tour wherever they may be, in a mountain or a valley or a cave or a city or a plain or a sandy track. Second, that I guard their religion and their faith wherever they may be, on dry land or sea, east or west, with whatever I guard myself and whatever belongs to the followers of Islam and me from my creed. Third, that I include them in my trust, in my covenant, in my security against any harm or anything shunned or any burden or any responsibility, and that I shall be behind them to protect them from any enemy that intends to harm me or their own selves, to do so with my own self, with my supporters, with my followers and with the people who follow my creed. Fourth, that I keep away from them any harm of burden which people who perform jihad bear from any assault or khiraj, land tax, other than what they pay willingly without being forced or coerced into doing any such thing. Fifth, that I do not remove a bishop from his bishopric, nor a monk from his monastery, nor a pilgrim from his pilgrimage, nor demolish any of their churches, nor let any construction of a mosque infringe on their buildings, nor should any house of the Muslims do so. Anyone who does any of these things reneges from his covenant with Allah, disobeys his messenger, and swerves from the covenant of Allah. Sixth, neither a monk nor a bishop, nor any of them who worships or wears woolen clothes or seeks solitude in the mountains or in areas that are isolated from cities should ever be required to pay jizya or khiraj. Seventh, whoever follows the Christian faith must not be forced into becoming a Muslim. Mercy must be spread for them and anything harmful must be kept away from them wherever they may be in the land. Eighth, if any Christian commits a crime or a serious offence, the Muslim must help him, prevent harm from reaching him, protect him and not let him bear the brunt of what he commits. Preferably, you must find a settlement between him and his victim, either pardon him or pay ransom on his behalf. Ninth, they, the Christians, must, be, must not be rejected, betrayed or neglected because I have given them Allah's covenant that they should have what Muslims have and be obligated to the Muslims' obligations. Tenth, Muslims must carry out their obligations towards the pact, which the covenant obligates. They should protect sanctities and they should keep away every harm from them, that is Christians. So they may become partners with the Muslims. They have what the Muslims have and are obligated to what the Muslims are obligated to. Eleventh, 
They may, if they need, repairs to their churches and places of worship, or anything related to their interests and creed, get assistance from the Muslims to make such repairs. They must be assisted and this must not be regarded as a debt against them, but as support in the interest of their religion and as fulfilment of the covenant of the Messenger of Allah, as a gift to them and a boon from Allah and His Messenger to them. The Ahmadiyya Perspective We in the Ahmadiyya movement have always subscribed to and upheld this concept and have embraced diversity even within Islam, as was seen when, during an Eid congregation at the Shah Jahan Mosque, Woking, Surrey, England, a Shia Muslim was asked to lead the prayer, thereby setting a precedent which, if it could only be followed by Muslims, would bring so much harmony. But, sadly, the events of the Middle East are the exact opposite, and different Muslim groups are locked in war with each other, and the other faiths have been caught in this most brutal conflict. It is significant that the theme of the 9th Ahmadiyya Convention 1983 in Trinidad was promotion of interfaith dialogue and harmony, very much in line with the Holy Prophet's practice. It consisted of many interfaith meetings, which included representatives of all the major faiths and delegations from throughout the Caribbean, Kashmir in India, the United Kingdom and the USA. The multi-faith dignitaries were to contribute to the session in their own invaluable way to the ideal and precedence envisaged by the covenant entered into by the Holy Prophet with the Christian delegation from Najran in 631 AD. Historically, these covenants were written after the Holy Prophet had a serious discussion about the teachings of Islam and the status of Jesus. In spite of the fact that Christian representatives had no answer to the questions put forth by the Holy Prophet Muhammad, the Holy Prophet, on the instructions of Allah, invited them to a Bubahla to which they did not agree and thus this covenant was drafted. Details of the discussion are given elsewhere in this issue. I, for one, do not recognize the Islam that is portrayed by the extremists or the media reporting of Islam, and we collectively must do as much as possible to push back on the corrupt narratives about Islam. Claim of the Mujaddid of the 14th Islamic century, divinely ordained reviver of the faith, and his movement established from the Holy Quran. A Friday sermon by Ibrahim Muhammad, South Africa. He it is who sent his messenger with the guidance and the religion of truth, Deen al-Haq, that he may make it prevail over all religions, and Allah is enough for a witness. Holy Quran, Chapter 48, Surah Al-Fat, The Victory, Verse 28 For three hundred years after the demise of the Holy Prophet Muhammad the religion of Islam, here referred to as Deen al-Haq, the religion of truth, was dominant in Arabia, a small part of Europe and Africa. Then a decline of 1,000 years set in. The Holy Quran makes mention of this as follows. He orders the affair, i.e. Islam, from the heaven to the earth. Then it will ascend to him in a day the measure of which is a thousand years as you count. The Adoration, chapter 32, verse 5. The mathematics is simple. 1000 plus 300 equals 1300. That takes us 
to the 14th century Hijra, which spans parts of the 19th and 20th centuries AD. This is the age which, according to the above calculation, will introduce the dawning of a spiritual enlightenment in the world. But let us see if the Holy Qur'an supports this assertion. Indeed, we find in Surah Al-Takwil, the folding up, chapter 81, verses 17 to 18, the following. And the night when it departs, and the morning, Subah, when it brightens. Commenting on these verses, Mulana Muhammad Ali, in his famous English translation of the Holy Quran, explains the departing of the night and the rise of the bright morning is clearly the disappearance of the darkness of ignorance, giving place to the bright light of the sun of Islam. These might seem to the casual observer as common statements often made in the Holy Qur'an. But if we look at the context in which these verses appear, we find that they are preceded by several prophecies that point very accurately to the 14th century Hijra, i.e. years 1300 to 1400 Hijra, coinciding with the years 1878 to 1978 AD, i.e. the 19th and 20th centuries AD. In the light of this phenomenon, let us examine some of these prophecies. And when the camels are abandoned, chapter 81, verse 4, in AD 1886 or 1304 Hijra, the first petrol or gasoline-powered automobile, the Benz patent motor wagon, was invented by Carl Benz. This steadily led to the replacement of camels with petrol-driven vehicles and steam-driven locomotives for the purpose of transportation. And when the cities are made to swell. Chapter 81, verse 6. Sociologist Kingsley Davis, in his famous book, The Origin and Growth of Urbanization in the World, writes, Urbanized societies, in which a higher proportion of the population lives in cities, developed only in the 19th and 20th centuries. And when men are united. Chapter 81, verse 7. The League of Nations was formed in 1920, replaced by the United Nations in 1945, both within the 14th century Hijra. Graham Bell invented the telephone in 1876, which revolutionised communications, bringing diverse communities into contact as never before. In 1895, a young Italian named Guglielmo Marconi invented what he called the wireless telegraph, which led to the invention of the radio, further enhancing communication across national boundaries and uniting them as never before, thus introducing the birth of a global community. The advanced technology, such as the internet of today, came about as a result of the technological inventions of the 19th century.
And when the books are spread. Chapter 81, verse 10. Improved printing presses increase the production and spread of books all over the world. Although the printing press was invented around 1440, it was only around 1864 that the hose six-cylinder rotary press was created, which led to improved printing processes. Together with the inventions of improved land and air conveyance during this period and the spread of books dramatically increased. And when the heaven had its covering removed, chapter 81, verse 11. The creation of advanced technologies and advanced telescopes unveiled new knowledge of space and introduced space travel. The knowledge of the universe grew rapidly in the late 19th century with the invention of advanced telescopes. Although the telescope comes from way back in the 1600s, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration acknowledge in 1879 George Ellery Hale revolutionized the study of heavenly bodies when he was responsible for the Yerkes Bay Refracting Telescope with its 40-inch lens, still the biggest ever, and a series of mirror telescopes atop Mount Wilson and later Mount Palomar in Southern California. With a 100-inch on Mount Wilson, which was Edwin Hubble's telescope, and the 200-inch Mount Palomar telescope, which Hale did not live to see completed. The new knowledge of the hidden secrets of the heaven that came with the invention of these advanced telescopes in the 19th century is what is meant by the prophecy when the heaven has its coverings removed. As stated, the fact that these prophecies are followed by the statement and the night when it departs and the morning when it brightens. Chapter 81, verses 17 and 18 Indicate that we are at the stage of the dawning of the revival and ascendance of Dinul Haq the religion of truth, which will steadily triumph over all the forces of falsehood and corruption. This begs the question, who then is the one that started this change of triumph of truth over falsehood in the 14th century Hijra, as alluded to in the Holy Quran, and who are the ones continuing to do so? All expectations are that it had to be one, rightly guided by the Divine Hand. This is the meaning of Mahdi. One possessed of deep knowledge and inspiration, armed with the true, uncorrupted teachings of Islam. This tells us it had to be the work of a divinely ordained Mujaddid, reviver of the faith, whose advents were prophesied by the Holy Prophet Muhammad and definitely not the work of just any scholar. Most scholars and clerics for generations, especially during the 14th century Hijra, have been postulating un-Quranic teachings or such based on erroneous interpretations of Islamic scripture, teachings which are now proving to be an embarrassment for all right-minded Muslims.
and are undermining and not uplifting the image of Islam in any way. For example, we often hear them teach that Jesus, regarded by Christians as the Son of God, is alive in heaven and will come to save the Muslims in the latter days after killing all unbelievers. Verses of the Holy Quran have and can be abrogated? Hadith sayings of the Prophet and opinions of jurists, fatwas, have precedence over the Holy Quran. Jihad means war with infidels and justifies forced conversions. Female gender discrimination and keeping sex slaves are justified. Non-prophetic revelation has stopped. Death sentences should be applied to apostates and adulterers despite Quranic teachings to the contrary. A Muslim who professes his faith in the Holy Kalima can be deemed a kafir, unbeliever, based on differences of opinions. Takfir. So the ulama, religious scholars, who teach these things cannot be the ones who will make Islam prevail over all other religions. On the contrary, their beliefs are busy destroying the beautiful image of Islam as contained in the Holy Quran and taught by the Holy Prophet Muhammad to the joy of Christian evangelists and Jewish fundamentalists. So Alhamdulillah, praise be to Allah, Almighty Allah raised a mujaddid who removed all these errors that steadily crept into Islam over the 1,000 years of decline and corruption and restored once again the true, pure and beautiful teachings of Islam. Teachings that will bring about the prevalence of the religion of truth over all other religions as clearly stated in the Holy Quran chapter 48 verse 28 the Mujaddid of the 14th century Hijra in the year 1885 AD coinciding with the year 1302 Hijra i.e. the 14th century Hijra Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad born 1835, died 1908, announced that Almighty Allah had raised him as the Mujaddid, the reviver of the faith for the Muslims. Up till today, no one else has come forth with such a claim or produced work that would support such a claim. In 1891 AD, 1308 Hijra, he announced that he had come to fulfill the prophecies of the Holy Prophet Muhammad regarding the promised Messiah and Mahdi that will be raised from amongst the Muslim community to break down by means of arguments and scriptural proofs the pagan-inspired doctrines of the religion of the cross referred to in authentic hadith as breaking of the cross and establish the true the real truth deen al-haq in the world however to do this enormous task effectively like the holy prophet muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam did at hudaybiyah mirza ghulam ahmed called on people to pledge their commitment by joining him in this noble service of the defence and propagation of Islam. For the first time in the history of Islam, an organisation was established to do this work in an organised manner under the auspices of the Mujaddid himself. 
Thus, in 1888 AD, or 1305 Hijra, Hazrat Mirza Sahib formed the Ahmadiyya movement to assist him in this work. This work entailed leading an exemplary life of righteousness, obtaining full knowledge of Islam and all other faiths, defending Islam with one's life by conducting debates, lectures, preaching, and, above all, the production of written works, which encompasses the translation of the Holy Qur'an into English and all other languages, the publication of well-researched literature on Islam and other faiths, and spreading it throughout the world. The name Ahmadiyya was taken from the Holy Prophet's name, Ahmad, meaning he who praises Allah much. This dedicated group, led by the Mujaddid, was like no other at the time. The poet Iqbal once declared in a lecture that if you wanted to see true Islam in practice, you have to go to Qadian. This is where Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed and his close companions stayed. Dedicated devotees who later joined the cause such as Khawaja Kumaluddin, Molana Muhammad Ali, Dr. Basharat Ahmed and many others who described the atmosphere at Qadian as that of solemn, sincere prayerfulness. They would witness Hazrat Mirza Sahib regularly performing the Hajjud a voluntary midnight prayer and often he could be heard crying for divine help for Islam even during bitterly cold winter nights there were always people in the mosque and their lodges making the hajjud this was very much the life of the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and his companions in the early days of Islam too. Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed wrote several books in defence of Islam. He ably rebutted all attacks of the Christian missionaries and the virile Hindu Arya Samaj that were constantly lambasting Islam and the noble character of the Prophet Muhammad He, for once and all, settled the age-long mystery regarding Jesus by declaring with solid proofs from the Holy Qur'an that he, Jesus, had completed his missions to the Israelites and died a natural death and is buried on earth together with his mother, Mary, Maryam. This drove a nail in the coffin of active Christian proselytizers in the region and saved thousands of Muslims adopting pagan-inspired Christianity as their preferred faith. So it is not a coincidence that the Holy Qur'an, by way of prophecies, points to the 14th century Hijra as the timing of the start of the disappearance of the night of unbelief, ignorance and corruption and the ushering in of the morning, Subha, of the bright light of the religion of truth, Deen ul-Haq. The importance of the 14th century Mujaddid based on these prophecies, is therefore far greater in scope than all other previous Mujaddids, because through his teachings and enlightened interpretations, the true message of Islam has been revived and steadily on its way to gain predominance in the world. The Ahmadiyya Movement Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed founded the Ahmadiyya movement for the sole purpose of the peaceful
propagation of Islam. It aimed to invite the West to Islam using good literature on Islam, of which the Holy Quran was at the top of the list. This required the hard work of a team of dedicated men and women. This work was groundbreaking and pioneering at the time, and much so today, as none of this level of propagation was ever undertaken in the history of Islam before. The movement under the guidance of the inspired Mujaddid produced several unique scholars and researchers who were bold enough to challenge the outdated mindsets and exegesis of conservative mainstream clerics and scholars. For the first time, organised missions were established on British and European soil and large amounts of literature shipped to those regions. Today, more than a century later, it is not uncommon to hear the desperate call of enlightened Muslims for such brave scholars produced by the Ahmadiyya school. It thus comes as no surprise that such significant work and those dedicated to it, much like the timing of these events, are alluded to in the Holy Qur'an, as pointed out above, are also hinted at in the Holy Qur'an. Thus we find in the following descriptions in the Scatters of Truth, chapter 51, verses 1 to 4, by those scattering broadcast and those bearing the load and those running or sailing or travelling easily, Yusran, and those distributing the affair. Bearing the load, which by the way also means becoming pregnant with knowledge, and scattering and broadcasting, and by distributing the affair, Isha'at Islam, propagation of Islam, are prominent features of the Ahmadiyya movement founded by the Mujaddid of the 14th century Hijra. The ease, Yusran, of travelling, referred to above, no doubt, points to an age of advanced modes of travelling that made transportation easy. This was made possible by inventions made during the 14th century Hijra and referred to in the Holy Qur'an, chapter 81, verse 4. As pointed out above, and definitely not a feature of 7th century Arabia. Like all revivalist and reformist personalities and movements throughout the history of humankind, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad and the Ahmadiyya movement were subjected to all kinds of false allegations and persecuted for their beliefs by their own religionists who were unable to give up erroneous archaic interpretations and beliefs as pointed out above. The Holy Quran addresses these opponents in the same surah, cursed be the liars, taste your persecution, fitna, this is what you hasten on. Chapter 51, verses 10-14 The Quranic narrative continues with a description that is reminiscent and comparable with life at Gadian, referred to above. During the time of Hazrat Mirza Sahib and his devoted followers, Surely the dutiful are amidst gardens and fountains. They used to sleep but little at night, and in the morning they asked divine protection. Chapter 15, verse 15, 17 and 18.
This section of the surah fittingly concludes by means of an oath. And by the Lord of the heavens and the earth, it is surely the truth, just as you speak. Chapter 51, verse 23. Since we are still at the dawn of a global spiritual revival initiated by the Mujaddid of the 14th century Hijra, whose advent, as shown, has been testified to in the Holy Quran, our duty as Muslims is to carry on with his work of making the religion of truth predominant in the world in a manner that is peaceful and inspirational, with a sense of respect and dignity for all. May Almighty Allah guide us all with his light. Amin.